because it is the Sabbath between Yom Terah and Yom Kippur, the ark remains closed and therefore we will not be removing the Torah scroll or the gospels so you don't need to stand. Uh, we make that distinction between our Bible translations and the actual words of God uh, as given. I'm on. You're not receiving me. It says it's on. Battery's low again. <laughs> okay, so um, now it's on too loud. So we are in the days of awe between Yom Terah and Yom Kippur. Yom Terah calls us back to God. Yom Kippur speaks of God's judgment and his mercy. And together they give us a perspective that God must be taken seriously. And that's what it means to fear the Lord. As we reflect on our lives this past year and as we consider eternity, uh, we must examine both judgment and the fear of the Lord. And those, those concepts actually go together, and you'll see that in, in the text today. We're not doing the text uh, for the week. They'll, they're available and you should read them. Uh, but I'm doing uh, this in context of the holy days uh, themselves. Uh, above the ark, uh, we have in Hebrew and in English um, a uh, statement that is written. This is very traditional in synagogues to have this. They usually don't have it in English. They just have the Hebrew uh, that uh, says, Dalifne mi ata omed. And those words roughly approximate, know before whom you stand. That notion, know before whom you stand, is not meant uh, to say that God is watching you, so you better watch out. Uh, it's been used that way, but that's not really its intent if you look at the scriptures. They really remind us that we are always under the watchful eyes of the Lord, who sees our weakness and our sin and is near to those who fear him uh, to bring about his mercy and to bring about his comfort and to bring about his peace because the Lord is just and the Lord is merciful to those who reject him there is justice without mercy and to those who fear him and struggle to obey him there is grace and mercy in the face of his just judgment and that's a very big difference. It's been somewhat lost in the church in recent uh, decades um, as we have gotten so love conscious and so uh, say the magic words and now you've got a ticket to heaven. Uh, that whole eschatology that has uh, created such a, a, a misunderstanding about the end times uh, has been such that it creates a lack of fear of God and a uh, complete idea that the judgment has passed and we don't have to worry about that. But this holy day reminds us that there is judgment and the judgment will begin with the house of God. So I want us to look at some passages today 
and see how the judgment is set up and how the fear of the Lord fits into that and how we go from here. Not in the sense of condemnation. Those who are in Christ Jesus are not under condemnation. Uh, and we need to understand that in the context of this. But it's also not an ollie ollie oxen free and you can just do whatever you want. The scripture is very clear that if we sin willfully, after that we have a knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. So between those two ideas, that those who are in Christ Jesus are not under condemnation, and those who sin willfully, even though they know the truth, have no sacrifice for them, uh, which scares a lot of us to death, there, there is a balance that we need to see. And so I want us uh, to understand that and see that in, in its context. So I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, beginning at verse 11, uh, is a passage about the ultimate final judgment of God. And as you look at our uh, uh, corner units at the back of the sanctuary here, and they change with each of the holy days, what's in them. On the left, as you go out, you'll see that there is the silver shofar, reminding us of the shofar and the silver trumpets, and the, high, the incenser, uh, reminding us of the ministry of the high priest, and the ten stones of the remembrance of the things of God, uh, which ties into the high holy days. Um, then on the right, as you go out, you see the balance scales that reminds us of judgment and three books uh, that are there. And those are tied to this text that we're about to read. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, it says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now this is a pretty uh, serious passage. Not one that will get you all excited uh, unless you're focused only on having your name in the book of life, right? Uh, it, it addresses the final judgment the present creation, the heavens and the earth that God created in the beginning are, are removed from God's presence. This temporary world and all that can be shaken is now shaken and gone. And the throne of God is central and the dead from Adam to the last one uh, to die in this uh, age uh, are all standing before God. And the dead that are brought up, it's from the sea and from the grave and from the place of the dead uh, called Hades. In other words, this is not just the spirits of the dead. This is all of the dead, all of them, the whole person, the soul, if you will. It is the body and life 
of the person standing before God. Everyone is going to be resurrected who has ever lived. And they will stand before God in their mortal form and answer to God in that context. Um, and the books are open. You notice it doesn't say they were judged based on their faith. It says they were judged based on their deeds. Now we have two books over there in the corner. One is uh, kind of a brown color and one is black. Those books represent for us the books of the acts of our life. There are behaviors that are related to holiness and the opposite of that is common. And there are behaviors related to good and evil and and uh, all of those things are uh, written in the books. All of the behaviors of our life. The scriptures are clear about the remembrance of those things. And often the prayers of, of religious people were, Lord, remember these deeds that I've done. Uh, they're written in the book. The idea that when we, what we do in our life is in some sense written. Now this is biblical language and uses the idea of the books. Today, if it were written, it's possible that it would be written in terms of the, uh, the uh, surveillance tapes. <laughs> the idea that, you know, you, if you watch the news, you almost can't go anywhere. Uh, that after something happens, uh, they can pull up the tapes and see where you were and GPS you. And they can look at when you came in and when you left and all of that. Well, this is representing the idea that there is nothing hidden from God. You don't have a public life and a private life and God only knows the public life. Um, we're beginning to find out in social media that everything you do there is public, right? Uh, well, with God, it's always all been public. When God said to Adam in the garden, where are you? It wasn't because he didn't know where he was. He was dialoguing with Adam. And I, Adam's not a good hide-and-go-seek guy because he said, I'm over here, I was hiding from you, which is... Very childlike, you know. Uh, usually you should be quiet if God doesn't know where you are, but he knew where he was. So everything is known to the Lord. And so the books will be there. We will stand before God and, and there are the books and we will be judged out of the books of our behavior and of our life. For many of us, not a pleasant thought. A pleasant thought that we will be judged for some of the things that we've done correctly, but not so pleasant on the things that we have done that are not uh, so pleasant. So the idea is that the books are open and we're judged according to our deeds. But then the scripture says that there is another book. And that book is the book of life. And the book of life just says that their names are written in the book of life and that those whose names are written in the book of life will receive eternal life. This is somewhat problematic for us because there are passages that talk about us having eternal life and people like to say, well, I already have eternal life. Uh, I'm already saved. Uh, and in, in a sense that's true, but we're also in the process and ultimately that salvation uh, is nearer now than when we first believed, indicating that it is not fully uh, uh, given to us yet, which will include a resurrected body that is not mortal, like the rest of mankind, but is one that is like his, 
tied to the new creation. And so there's much to say about this second book. We have that represented by the red book there, the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. Uh, those who have been purchased by the blood of the Lord, those who have, as the earlier passage said, mixed that good news with faith. The gospel won't save you without faith. The faith comes because God's gracious to us and it is all of that working together that brings us to a knowledge of him and to salvation. And so the book of life is not a judgment of deeds but a book where those whose names are written will receive eternal life based on the grace of God. The names have been written because uh, and, and connected with their faith in God and they have been given his spirit. It is not a book of deeds, though in some sense the gratitude of God's grace coming to us causes us to struggle all the more to do deeds of righteousness and holiness. As Ephesians says, by grace we are saved through faith and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has foreordained that we should walk in them. In other words, because God's grace has come to us, we struggle to obey him. We don't obey him because then we will earn salvation. Um, that, that order is, is critical to understand. Now connected to this idea is Romans chapter 14. I'd like you to turn there. Romans chapter 14. Beginning at verse 10 in the context of uh, Paul telling us that we should not judge others. He writes these words. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. As it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. The idea that Paul is saying is, you should be focused on the judgment of God for yourself, not for someone else. Uh, it is very easy in religious contexts for people to judge others by their level of attainment. So if I have attained a certain level of obedience to God, and one of you hasn't, then I dismiss you or condemn you because you're not as spiritual as me. Now, there's probably someone who is has an attainment beyond me. I certainly don't want to compare myself to them. Though in America that's possible because we have this very bizarre dysfunction of comparing ourselves to someone better than ourselves so we can say I'm not as good. A form of narcissism that's kind of a negative narcissism. So we have narcissists who say I'm worthless and narcissists who say I'm wonderful. <laughs> what a culture, right? Uh, the idea, the scripture says, is that those who compare themselves to others are not wise. 
Wisdom does not compare yourself to those who have not attained where you have attained, lest you become holier than thou, and does not compare yourself to those who have walked before you, but uses them as an examples of where you are moving. And that's a different attitude and mindset uh, than what many of us have been taught. But notice he says, each one of us will give an account to God. Not only are the books there, but we actually have to give uh, an account of this thing. Uh, Again, not necessarily a happy thought. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul gives us a a small uh, insight um, and I mean small by comparison to the fullness of it. It's quite an important insight uh, to this context. And in verses 10 and 11, we're going to focus on that. But let me give you the background. The first part of this chapter, Paul talks about if this body, this temporal body is destroyed, you and I are going to have a heavenly body. Not a body in the heavens, but a body that is heavenly. In other words, we have had an earthly body, right? This body came from the dust of this ground. This next body will be a transformation of this body into a a spiritual body like Jesus. Real, as real as the physical body, but spiritually based rather than physically based in terms of its dynamics. One from heaven, one from earth. That's what he's talking about. And in the context of that, he then says to us uh, that whether we are in this present body and absent from the Lord or present with the Lord and absent from this body and in some sense from the heavenly body in that transitional awaiting, we seek to please God because his grace has come to us. And so he says, verse 9, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home in this body or absent from this body, to be pleasing to him. Because we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or evil. So again, this theme. But notice the next verse. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we, have, or we are made manifest also in your conscience. Now, what Paul is saying is, we are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We are going to be rewarded for the good that we have done. We are going to suffer loss for that which we have done that is inappropriate. That's the judgment of the books. But he says, we know the fear of the Lord. And in the fear of the Lord, we are persuading men. And the the idea here is we are persuading them towards the new direction. And in that we are manifest to God. And I hope that you see it too, is what he's saying. So that your conscience will see us as an example of where you should go, not as a condemnation. 
Now, in this context, he says that we do this because we know the fear of the Lord. So, at this point, if you're facing judgment, you need to face judgment with a knowledge of the fear of the Lord. A term that is just found throughout the Scriptures and yet not talked about much and not clear in many people's minds. So I want us to take a look at that and I'm going to do the rest of the message basically on that context. I'd like you to turn to the book of struggles. You may know it as Job. (laughs) Job 28. And in Job 28... There is an extended passage I want to read here that is really important. We'll pick it up at verse 12. After talking about God creating the the earth and that you can dig in the earth and find gold and you can dig in the earth and find silver and you can dig in the earth and farming and get grain and food, that you can get a lot of stuff from this world and from this creation that's very good. Then he asks the question, But where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Is there a mine for wisdom? Is there a field for understanding? Now, the modern secular world would say, yes, there is. It's science and the university. Well, well versed in both of those, I would say with Solomon that those are vanity. Uh, And they have limited value, some value, but limited value. In other words, you are not going to discover wisdom and you are not going to discover understanding through education. So he says in verse 13, man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me. And the sea says, it's not with me. Pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it, and silver can't be weighed out as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Glass or gold cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for any articles of fine gold. Coral and crystal are not to be mentioned, and the acquisition of wisdom is above that of pearls and topaz and pure gold. It can't be purchased with the things of this world. This is why Jesus says, what shall it profit a man if he gain all of the world and lose his life? So where does wisdom come from? Verse 20 says, and where is the place of understanding? If you learn this and you teach your children this, you will bring them up in the fear of the Lord. We'll see that. Thus it is hidden from the eyes of the living and concealed from the birds of the sky. Abaddon and death say, with our ears we have heard a report of it. So it's not there. But God understands its way and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. Know before whom you stand, for he gives his watch care over all things. 
He imparts weight to the wind and meted out the waters by measure. He sets the limits for the rain and the course of the thunderbolt. He saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. But to man, he said, here comes the revelation of God. This is why I'm a biblical text person. This can only come from God. It can't come from the creation. Behold the fear of the Lord. That is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. Now what this means is, those who know the Lord and fear Him are on the path of wisdom, for wisdom comes from above. And those who uh, obey His commandments by departing from evil into good and holiness have understanding. And none of that comes from any of the academic disciplines. They're simply not there. Now with that in mind, I want you to look at another verse that reinforces that. Psalm chapter 111, verse 10. Over and over, the scriptures say this. We had a reading earlier this week, I mean this today. Um, and this one says it, and now Psalm 111 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. Who study His commandments? No. Who hear His commandments? No. Who do His commandments. I've told you this before, but I want to reinforce it. There's a difference in Hebraic learning and Greek learning. Greek learning, I say something, you say it, and if we both say the same thing, you have learned it. That is a form of learning, but it is not understanding, it is simply uh, passing something on. That's found in the scriptures. We are to memorize the scriptures. But more than that comes understanding. That's simple knowledge. Understanding means that you get it. Now how do you get it? Well, uh, my example always is this. If my son would have come to me when he was young and said, uh, Dad, why does water run downhill? I could have explained gravity to him and mass attraction. He still wouldn't have known the answer to the question. Why does electricity go out? Okay. We'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that's great <laughs> so the idea is that see this is great it's just like the early church yeah uh, the uh, the idea we couldn't do this if we were in the old sanctuary we'd, we'd been in trouble it, we have the light of God here <laughs> So the idea is uh, that if I said to him, okay, run up that hill, and he runs up the hill, and he says, now what? And I say, run down the hill, and he runs down the hill, and I say, what do you know now? And he says, it's easier to go downhill than uphill. That's why water runs downhill. He has understanding, not knowledge. If you have gone to college, and most of you have, and if you've gone to grad school, 
then you know that there are people with PhDs who are basically idiots. Okay? They are packed full of knowledge and they don't have any wisdom and they have no understanding. Three levels. Knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. And wisdom and understanding. Understanding comes from doing the commandments and wisdom comes from God. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally. The idea is that we need to see this in, in that context. Now, as we move forward, I want to look at two gospel passages. The first one is Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 is a passage where Jesus is sending his disciples out uh, in ministry. And if you read the way that the chapter reads, it seems to not only indicate their immediate ministry that they're doing, but also ministry as they will do it. In other words, it's a template, a training. They're on an ISP, if you will. They're kind of going through a training session with this early movement, but then they will later be sent out uh, and they will follow this same pattern. And in that pattern, he tells them uh, in, in verses 24 that the disciple is not above his master or his teacher, nor is the slave above his, his master. Uh, it is enough for the disciple that he becomes like his teacher and that the servant becomes like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebub, how will they uh, much more call the members of the household names? Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Now what is that phrase? There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed. He's talking about the judgment. At the judgment... Everything will be out in the open. And there will be no place of escape. So don't be afraid of these people. Don't fear men. Don't fear men's judgment. But I will tell you, he says, where you should fear. And so he says, what I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. Now, what's the idea here? The idea is that we are presently in this world, before that ultimate judgment, in these bodies. And these bodies can be harmed, and these bodies are subject to death. And so the way the world controls is they control your body either through uh, restriction or suffering or death. And they threaten in that way. And Jesus says, don't worry about them and don't fear them because they can kill the body, releasing your spirit back to God. But God is the God of resurrection who will put body and spirit back together. In your case, in our case, in a new resurrected body, in the case of them, in their mortal corruptible state. And therefore, there is nothing that can be done to us in this life that the Lord can't undo and correct in the life to come. That should be a comfort for us. 
Now, in a parallel passage in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 12, Jesus talks about this same notion. Luke 12, verse 2. There is nothing covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, what you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the housetops. Jesus said we are going to give an account for every idle word. There is nothing that you have ever done privately that won't be in the books of the judgment. Wow. Boy, wouldn't it be nice if only that which was public and that we, you know, you know how the politicians go, I approve of this message. If, if we could do a behavior and it say, God, I approve of this behavior. Count this one for me. That one, I don't really approve of that one, God, so don't count it for me. That, that would be nice. We don't get that. They're all there. So he says, accordingly, uh, uh, he says, I say to you, my friend, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that, they have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear, the one before whom you stand. The one who, after he has killed has the authority to cast into Gehenna. I tell you, fear him. We should fear the Lord, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That fear is to know that God knows everything and he is our judge. Therefore, trying to con God is a joke. The reality is, we should be able to say to the Lord, Lord, here I am, standing in the need of prayer. Lord, here I am, standing in the need of cleansing. Lord, here I am, uh, breathing dirt that can't seem to get my act together, right? Because a broken and contrite spirit, God will not despise. But if we come before the Lord saying, hey, let me tell you all the good things I've done, he knows them already, but he knows the whole story. And therefore, no flesh will be justified by the works of the flesh. In his sight. Now, the context of this passage in chapter 12 uh, is, is found in verse 1. It says that he was telling his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, the Pharisees get a pretty rough. Uh, um, reputation with the uh, with the church. Actually, Israel gets a rough reputation with the church. We know all, in the book is written all of their failures, right? Everything they did good and everything they did bad is written in the book for us to read, right? So what do we do? We look at what they did wrong and go, ha ha ha, we're not like them. Oh yes, we are. Read church history. Read Baptist history. The truth is that all of those things are known. The difference is whether we confess our sin to God and struggle towards obedience or whether we try to establish our own righteousness by selecting through. Nothing hidden 
that will not be known. So the hypocrisy of the Pharisees that Jesus is talking about. Remember, he said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't enter into the kingdom of heaven. He's not talking about them because the Pharisees are unrighteous. He is talking about a problem within the Pharisees as they are striving for their righteousness. They have moved in a direction of hypocrisy. Now what is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is not the same as inconsistency. I, I really appreciate um, uh, Dennis Prager's insight on this. There's a difference between being inconsistent and being a hypocrite. A hypocrite does things to be seen and doesn't care about them at all. He just cares about his reputation. A person who is trying to be a person of character is concerned about their reputation, but only as it reflects their character. The person who's only concerned about their reputation doesn't care about their character. They only care about their reputation. So they do it from the outside. And Jesus said, at the extreme, you become a whitewashed sepulcher whose inside are dead man's bones. In other words, we must seek to obey God from the heart. Jesus says it's from the heart that all this evil is coming out. We are to be transformed from the inside, struggling with who we are inside, and then approximating as best we can the direction of our growth in our outward manifestation. And so if you are, do, if you are praying occasionally, you are not a hypocrite, you are inconsistent. But if you tell people, I'm a great prayer, but you don't pray, you're a hypocrite. Because then you'll pray when people say, let's pray. Oh yeah, I pray. I, we should pray. I think we should pray. I know some people, I've known them for years, who I don't think ever pray. They never talk about any private prayers. But they're always the one to call us to prayer whenever we meet. I think we should have a prayer. They're a hypocrite. Okay. Now if somebody says, yeah, but I don't pray every day like I should, that, then you're inconsistent. Don't confuse inconsistent with a hypocrite. But understand that the one that God is after is the one who is working on his character, not working on his reputation. People who are working on their reputation want to be seen of men. Jesus says they have their reward and it is done. But those who are working on their character will become like their teacher, will become like their master, because the character of Jesus was the character of God. Does that make sense? So we walk in our integrity by fearing God and struggling to obey Him, not by being conformed to the pressure of this world, because if you fear men, you will conform to the, their judgment, and that's foolishness. But if you fear God, you will conform to His judgment, and that's wisdom. And as you conform to His judgment and His commandments, you will have understanding. Because you will walk according to the truth. I want to give you one last passage. Uh, I 
as I looked at the fear of the Lord and uh, judgment, uh, I realized that there could be about a 13 to 20 week series just covering all the texts that pull these things together. Um, so I'm just giving you, if you will, almost proof text to give you an understanding that it's found in the apostles, it's found in the prophets, it's found in the Torah, it's found in the Psalms. Uh, this is a common theme of the scriptures. In 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning at verse 12, The scripture says, I'm on, before I quote this, those who live godly in this world, those who struggle to follow God in this world, will suffer persecution. One of the reasons that there is so much anti-Semitism is that the Jews announced to the world, again, this is uh, a statement that Dennis Prager makes that I think is, is valuable, uh, he wrote a book on, on this. Um, the Jews announced to the world, all of your gods are nonsense. There's only one God, and he introduced himself to us. That will not make you popular. Then they said, God has commandments. We are his chosen. We must obey those commandments to be an example and a light to you. That will not make you popular. And you know that. The minute you decide to do something that other people don't want to do, they don't go, okay, go ahead. They go, why do we have to do that? Because if you do it, they somehow feel like there's an obligation on them. So their goal now is to stop you. Okay? That's peer pressure. And that's the pressure of the world. That's conforming to the world. That's the fear of man instead of the fear of God. So the idea here is that if you try to do that, you are going to suffer not only the sufferings of this present age, but you're going to suffer persecution. In that context, Peter writes these words. Chapter 4, verse 12 of 1 Peter. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you, for your testing, as though some strange thing has happened to you. This is not odd, this is normal. And it will test the commitment of your faith. And it will test the sincerity of your commitment. And it will test the reality of your choice. But to the degree that you are suffering the sufferings of Christ, rejoice. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Jesus' form of this was, Rejoice when men persecute you and say all manner of evil falsely against you for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and the spirit of God rests on you. But make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Because we have understanding to remove ourselves from evil. 
and to follow the Lord. As we try to remove ourselves from evil and follow the Lord, we will suffer for righteousness sake. But if we follow the path of evil, we will suffer for the evil that we've done. He says, don't suffer that way. That's useless suffering. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in, his, in this name. Now it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the good news of God? For if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Doesn't sound to me like it's an ollie-ollie-oxen free at the judgment. Oh, oh, you Christians, just come on in, yo. All right, just come on in, just come on in. You stand before God, you give an account for your life. I always think of this passage when I watch Schindler's List. Schindler's List is an interesting movie. You see this man who's pretty narcissistic uh, become concerned and compassionate towards people. Really, you see God changing his heart, not for his sake, so much as for the sake of God's ancient people. And at the end, when they are about to be delivered, and he is being given a ring, and they put on it from the Talmud, he who saves one life saves the world entire. He realizes with this pen, he could have saved two people. With the car, he could have saved more people. I believe at the judgment, we will say, what the heck was I doing? It's a struggle to be in this life and keep eternal perspective. It's a struggle in this life and keep the balance of stewardship. It's very hard. Rami and I have talked about this a lot. He thinks it's harder to do it here than it is in third world countries. Because here we've got all of this stuff and we live almost in a Disneyland world. And, and what we think is a necessity is electric lights and air conditioning, both of which have just left us. And in a little bit, as this room heats up, we'll go, let's go somewhere else, right? We don't suffer well. We have difficulty with denying ourselves at Lent. We are fat and sassy Christians. We are. And we need to be honest about that. Now, I don't think that should condemn us. I think that should encourage us to say we can begin the spiritual disciplines, which we have been studying all year, the spiritual disciplines to make this next year a year of greater stewardship for the Lord. A year of greater walking the pathway together. A year of instructing the children even more than we did. Not because of condemnation, but because of gratitude for where we're headed and what the Lord is doing for us. And if we're barely going to be saved by the grace of God, what will happen to those who have rejected the good news and who deliberately walk in sin? 
And that's Peter's, Peter's argument. All of them saying, know before whom you stand. Not in the sense of paralyzing yourself. I'm, I can't do anything right. I can't do anything wrong. So I won't do anything. That paralysis is not good. But the struggling to walk with God, to practice his presence, to receive wisdom from him and understanding as we obey his commandments. This is what we should be committing ourselves to uh, as we move towards the real day of atonement in its fullness at the second coming. So as we go through the high holy days, the message of God is to reinforce us uh, in the fact that we have chosen life. Rather, we have been chosen for life. And our names are written in the book of life. We are called to walk the path of life in wisdom and in understanding. Wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Understanding is to do His commandments. So let us commit our way to the Lord and teach our children the fear of the Lord. Let us be mindful of the one before whom we stand now in this life and before whom we will stand in the judgment. Let's pray. Father, it's easy for us to go to extremes in this culture. And we could think that tomorrow we should sell everything we have, give it all away, and put on a, a robe like St. Francis and, and go out into the world. And while certainly there are some of your children who have done that, if we all did that, uh, we would not be able to care for one another. The other extreme is to say that was then and this is now and we have needs and we are enlightened and, and we are entitled to all that we have. And that certainly is foolishness too, Lord. So as we look at the balanced scales of justice, let us also, Lord, understand that we must struggle with your wisdom and with your commandments to balance our lives, to number our days and to apply our hearts to wisdom that we may please you, that we might bring treasures into heaven and into eternity by doing your commandments and helping others in this life. Help us, Lord, to be mindful of that for our children's sake and our grandchildren's sake. Help us to be mindful of that for one another. And let us do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith, as we struggle to walk in obedience to you in this path of life until we do stand before you in judgment and experience your full salvation and the reward of our stewardship. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Q&A. Yes. What was that? Yeah. Um, um, very few things weigh so much on my heart that when I transgress against my children, part probably because they're going to love me anyway. And so that, that seems even more wrong, per se. 
Yeah. Um, and so I'm probably I'm the quickest to apologize to them. How does that, and I don't mean this for my benefit per se, but how does that come into play um, when we are answering, and I'm thinking about it as in, in legal terms, mitigating or aggravating circumstances? Uh -huh. How does that How do we answer that way? How does that well, we don't, we, we're not able to do it fully because we look on the outside and God looks on the heart, right? We see in partial and he sees fully. Uh, but he has given us in the commandments a clear understanding that when we wrong each other, uh, we, there we go, when we wrong each other, uh, we are uh, obligated to confess our sin, first to the person that we have done it to, make restitution to the ability that we can, and then come to God for, for, for forgiveness, mm -hmm. right? Um, that process has somehow been shortcutted by just apologizing. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think we should move away from apologies and move back into that process. Doing that with our children and with each other begins to help us understand, I think, uh, uh, an insight to the judgment to come. I suspect that where I have wronged people and not made restitution, my, some of my reward will be removed and the restitution will be made, mm -hmm. right? And remember, that could be four times mm -hmm. the amount, right? So, and if you don't have much of a bank account, you can, you can, you can go good deed bankrupt really quick, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, I try to keep that stuff in mind. I need to keep relationships as clean as I can now with people around me, and that means making restitution. Um, and that's difficult because we're not good at it, and some people aren't even aware of it. So when you try to make restitution, they go, oh, no. And you don't know if they're really forbearing it, which is allowed, or if they're just doing the nice thing because... It's public and they're being polite, right? So I think there's a lot we have to learn in this context. With regard to children, if we keep it simple and we try to do some restoration towards them as well, uh, and th if they see that that's adult behavior, not kid behavior. See, if a kid has to do restitution, but the adults don't have to, they begin to believe that kids have to restore but adults don't I can't wait till I'm an adult right but if they know that those to whom much is given much is required you have an even greater obligation than they do then they grow up in the fear of the Lord I don't know if that answered it but that's the best I can do at this point this is a very difficult doctrine in the present time of the church because we've really created the I said the magic words I'm going to heaven that's certain I just have to live in the victory and the idea of you know facing God uh, is is not it's it's almost like um, those of you who are in the MFT program you pass all the classes and now you have this comprehensive exam and that comprehensive exam drives you crazy you just wish it wasn't there you know, even though we say 
uh, this will not necessarily end your degree, but it makes you face your whole educational process. We don't want to face that, you know. It's a lot of work. So. No other questions? Okay, we don't have to stand because there's no replacing the Gospels. So I guess we'll just ring the bell and...